Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And thank you for tuning in. As always, special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. And uh, be sure to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast uh, app. We are on TuneIn, Google Play, and iTunes. And if you have any feedback about the show or have any guests you want to request, you can send them to my email. That's srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. So this week, we sat down with Progress Ohio Executive Director Sandy Tice. Uh, Andrew and I sat down with her, and uh, what did you make of it? So I wasn't able to make it for the interview, but I'm curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners are too, what is Progress Ohio? Progress Ohio is a liberal advocacy organization. Uh, They do organizing, they do consultancy, I believe, a little bit, um, but mostly they're an activist organization for progressive values. Now, I don't think they necessarily do any kind of campaigning or anything like that, but they will go door to door and knock and say, you know, this is the right person. And they're very blatantly left wing. So what did you make of Sandy Tice? I mean, what was the interview like? What did you think? I thought she was great. I mean, it's very cool when you have someone who has been on both sides, you know, doing the journalism thing, doing uh, even the activist thing, the consultant thing, the kind of lobbyist thing. And, you know, really just getting pretty much every side of the political spectrum except actually being an elected official. But being someone who works with elected officials constantly, it was it was really interesting to see kind of both sides through the looking glass, so to speak. She also had some funny stories about strippers. And I'll just let that one hang out there and pique your curiosity as to, so you can discover it uh, inside the episode. And uh, with that, let's get to the interview with Sandy Tice. Sandy, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So uh, we wanted to have you on because you're a past reporter and now you're an activist. Uh, You lead Progress Ohio. Um, But you grew up in the Mahoning Valley, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's correct. And uh, you used to work in a steel mill? Yep. That's how I put myself through college. uh, Did many people put themselves through college uh, working at a steel mill? I I, I think a lot of people up there did. And uh, what's sad is the steel mill's not there anymore. And if it was, you wouldn't make enough to pay for college. And I was in college in the 70s and 80s, five years as a journalist. Um, And college is so expensive now, it would probably pay for one quarter. What did you do there? Um, I did a lot of different things. I swept the floor one year. I was a superintendent's clerk a couple of times. It was an interesting place. My dad was the boss, and um, I had to the first year I had to go into the mill every year I worked in an office and I had to deliver this report and the crane men would blow the crane whistle and scared me. I mean, it's dirty and it's big and it's loud and I was not comfortable in that environment. And so about the third day did I gave the crane men the finger and um, I was back in my chair and I, my butt was not in the chair for 10 seconds when my dad called and said, did you give the crane men the finger? And I said, yeah, every time I walk in there, they harass me and this and this happened. And he said, okay, he just wanted to check. And so a guy comes in and he wants to take me down to the paint shop. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting a really crummy non-office job this year. But they went and they painted my name on my hard hat. And my dad was the boss. No one bothered me after that. (laughs) Ah, that's that's smart thinking. Yeah, I didn't realize what he was doing. And then this nice man who took me down there, he told me that since I was new, I needed to know how to lay down my hat. And you always put your hat facing out which is where your name is. So I did what I was told, and um, it was a hassle-free workplace after that. So how did you go from, you know, take us on that journey from going, you know, the Mahoning Valley to becoming, uh, you were the 
bureau chief, right? The Columbus bureau chief, yeah. plain dealer. Yeah, I right after college, I started covering the state house. Um, I didn't know how a bill became law, and I I must have been a good interview. And I worked for the Horvitz papers. Um, it was a chain of four papers: Mansfield, Lorraine, Lake County, and New Philly. They were afternoon papers. And um, I was there, and then I went to the Citizen Journal, which used to be the morning paper in Columbus. That was a fun place to work. The Dispatch was the afternoon paper, and we were in the same building. And we did not like them at all, and they did not like us at all. And we were all young, and we all knew we were probably going to go out of business. It had a 100-year-old joint operating agreement that expired. So we were in there to raise a lot of hell, and we did, and beat the Dispatch, and we did. Um, Then I went to the Dayton Daily News. And I went to the Cincinnati Inquirer, and then I went to the Plain Dealer. Is there any paper in Ohio that you didn't report for? The the Toledo Blade. Mm. I was never in Northwest Ohio, but uh, I loved it. I mean, it's a it's a great place. If you like competition, the only real competition these days is the White House or the State House. And so the State House was perfect because I had kids, and I don't think the White House is too conducive to that. So, you know, going from working in a steel mill to being a statehouse correspondent, that's probably not the typical career route for most journalists. <laughs> I mean, except I guess I did pour concrete back in the day, so maybe it's more common than I think. Um, but I'm wondering how your background in the Mahoning Valley, um, how, how did it kind of inform your views and your work ethic and, you know, who you are today? I, I, the one thing I love about the Valley is the work ethic. Um, there's nobody up there who's lazy, and people who are not working want to work. And um, I have a friend who ended up, he was a, run, ran a factory, and he left Ohio, and he went down south. And he called me one day, and he said, 40% of my workforce called in sick. And I was like, what is it, Legionnaire's disease or something? And he said, no, it was the opening day of hunting season. People just called in sick. And he said that never would have happened in Ohio. And I don't think it would have. Uh, I have one family member up there. All the rest of them have moved to Columbus, which is great. But it's pretty sad up there. Do you have any good stories from your time as a uh, state house reporter? Can I tell you about my biggest mistake? Sure. Okay, so I'm 24. I'm working for the Horvitz Papers, and uh, Gertrude Donahue was the state treasurer, and she was the first woman state treasurer. Now that's pretty common to have women treasurers, and she was leaving after many many years. And she was from the New Philly circulation area, and they wanted me to do a feature story on her. And she was an elderly lady and she had this perfectly perfectly coiffed hair and we took a picture of her in her awning striped wing chair and I called Jerry Austin for the profile interview and he called her the great lady of Ohio politics and I'm a fast typer and it ended up in print as the great lay of Ohio politics (laughs) okay and it only got in the first edition thank god (laughs) but they called me and they told me what I did and I called her first thing in the morning and I was so humiliated and I apologized and I told her what happened. She said, oh honey, I've heard from people I haven't heard from in years. Don't worry about it. So that was a good, that was a good lesson. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's interesting though that she was able to take that mistaken stride, you know, especially considering how we see the visceral reaction to any kind of error in reporting today. So um, how do you think it's changed and, you know, I, I can't believe the constant attacks on the press. And at the, what was it, 88 presidential convention, um, I was at the Republican convention, and that was when the real pushback on the press started. And we were catcalled when we were on the floor of the convention hall. I mean, people would call us names and that kind of stuff. 
and there was one guy there with a little ukulele in his you know, red, white, and blue hat singing, Don't Come Near If You're a Queer. It was just a really hateful event, and um, it bothered me at first, but, you know, it's like gynecologists get used to seeing people naked. Reporters get used to people treating him that way. But when I saw what was happening with the um, Trump calling people out and that one T-shirt with a, a noose and a tree, and it said, and a journal, journalist tree, tree right. yeah, yeah, assembly required or whatever it was, I, I, that blew me away. And I think Trump's encouraging that. And um, we give out a Progressive Hero Award every year, and it's the one person who most exemplifies the progressive values. The year before last, we gave it to Connie Schultz, and I got to interview Connie, and um, I asked her how she, what kind of instruction she gives to her students because she's a journalism professor now that's different and she told me how she gives them advice on how to be safe how to wear your press pass all the time to get to know the reporters the, the veteran reporters so particularly the ones who are big and I thought wow I, I you know when I was a young reporter they taught me how to not get sued and how to file a public records request not how to not get beat up that blows me away um, so after the November 2016 election, actually, the next day I went out to Trumbull County and I called you um, and I was kind of relieved uh, that you told me to go to the hot dog shop because I used to go there <laughs> growing up and it was, you know, it's still delicious and it tastes the same as I remember. But it's so, um, but so I, I just remember that conversation. Um, what is it about, you know, uh, Donald Trump that you think appeals to people in the Mahoning Valley, given, you know, you know, the area and you're from there and stuff? I, I, f I think that they feel like nobody looks out for them anymore. They've had a lot of promises made and a lot of promises broken because it's such a reliable democratic part of the state. So if you're going to campaign statewide, you have to make the pilgrimage to the valley. And there's, you know, a lot of strong organizers. There's a lot of strong labor unions. Dave Beatrice, the Mahoning County chairman, he's terrific. He's organized. What I don't understand is why Trump's failure to deliver on those promises doesn't seem to be mattering. He was going to look out for the little guy, and all he's done is hurt the little guy. I mean, like this deal where he wants to take the tips away from the servers and take them out of their pockets. If you're a, a, a waitstaff person, your tips are a big part of your income. And I just don't think that that's sinking in right now, and I, I hope it will. Um. So how did you... Uh make the transition then from getting out of journalism and into activism. And was that weird? I mean, we, we sort of like, at least you didn't go to PR, like the true dark side, but <laughs> so how did you? Uh, I actually did. I have a PR company oh, and, okay. um, and I left and the, uh, one of the first things that I did was there was a, the right wing had just done the gay marriage ban and uh, they came in back into Ohio and they had a bill they were going to try to, Put the strip clubs out of business. And that was like what, 2004 ish? Or something? Um, I think 2006. Okay. And uh, so I called up their lobbyist and I said, if Citizens for Community Values, that's those right wing people from Cincinnati who did the marriage bed, I said, if they're for it, I'm against it, hire me to do your press. And so I worked for, we called them dancers, not strippers. And we uh, created Dancers for Democracy, and there was this bill that was supposed to go in, and you could not come within a six-foot radius of a dancer without committing a felony. Even if she was fully clothed, even if it was her day off, this is, they just wanted to harass them and put them out of business. And so I got to know a lot of dancers, some of them I still know, and uh, the, the boys in the press corps always attended the press conferences with them. And all the clubs sent their most beautiful women 
Most of them were single moms. Uh, many of them were college students. And they were really interesting people. When, when uh, we had a big press conference at Progress Ohio, and we made a big hula hoop that was a six-foot radius, and we covered it with caution tape. And we put the dancers in the middle of it, and we had them hold it up to show just how big a space that was. And most of these clubs, I understand, are pretty small. I had never been in a strip club before. And Aaron Marshall, who also worked at the Plain Dealer, I hired him. Aaron called me one day, and he goes, you've never been in one of those places, have you? And I said, why? And he goes, have you? And I said, no, I haven't. Why? And he said, the way you talk about it is totally wrong. You need to go in there and see what you're talking about. So I, I did. I, I went into a strip club. Did, have, you, did you expense it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was my business, so you know, <laughs> they they let me in free. Yeah, in fact, the 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 dancer who was the head of the steering committee was from that club, uh, and it was cahoots in Columbus, and it's a, it's a nice place. Um, so how is it different, you know, going from being on, uh, uh, you know, we're we're supposed to be unbiased in journalism, yeah, and then going over to kind of activism consulting, PR, and you know kind of full bias over there well I haven't done anything I've disagreed with and people have tried to hire me for things I disagree with and I won't do it for example I did the payday lending referendum the other side approached me for more than three times what I made and the homeless coalition was my client and it's like I think the payday lenders are thieves I think they're bad people I think they hurt people and I wasn't going to go work for them and uh, we were outspent 60 to 1. We beat them 2 to 1. We had one TV commercial. That's all we could afford. But we had this guy in a shark suit. We named, his name was Shady Shark. And Shady was a reformed loan shark. And when they dropped off their petitions to get on the ballot, we had Shady with this big sign that said, what was the, what was the, the interest rate? The highest interest rate, I think, was 241%. And his sign said, is 241% too high? Yes yes on issue, whatever it was. And every time the other side put a TV ad on the air, I would call the TV stations and I would say, we don't have any money, you know they're thieves, please put a picture of my shark on the air. And Shady was everywhere. He had his own Facebook page. Um, my daughter was 16, <laughs> even though she couldn't vote, she started Shady's Ladies. And so she and all of her fabulous friends were on this Shady's Facebook page. It was fun. There's, there's like a direct line from Shady the Shark to Buddy the Potleaf, I think, right? <laughs> I, that wasn't my idea. But um, yeah, we. so, you know, I think if you do stuff you believe in, it's a lot easier to pimp for a cause. You're, you're pretty unabashedly liberal as well, right? And Yes, uh, I am. And, you... I'm, and I'm on the NARAL board, too. So, um, you know, I am unabashedly pro-choice. And you used to work with Republicans a lot, though, when you were a reporter. And I'm wondering... Did uh, did switching over and becoming kind of a liberal activist alienate any of those people? I, I think it did with some people, but the people who I covered, um, I think, have been helpful. And I'll give you an example. You, the Plain Dealer, did a really nice piece on a woman named Joanna Orozco, who was shot in the face when she was a senior in high school. And I was on the board of the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. I was their free press secretary, and we were trying to get a bill passed that would allow civil protection orders against minors. And Joanna broke up with her boyfriend because he was beating her up. And um, he showed up at her house, and he, she couldn't get a protection order because the law didn't allow them against minors. And she, the cops would drive by every now and then and try to help her, but, um, you know, without the protection order, 
It was kind of voluntary. So he shows up, he shoots her at close range with a shotgun. And we can't get this bill passed, which made no sense to me. She was such a terrific, smart young woman with a great story and a survivor. And I called Betty Montgomery, who used to be in the state Senate and who's a friend. And I said, Betty, would you please find out why we can't get this bill passed? And she did. And what we found out was, what Betty found out, was that we were using the same definition of teen dating that the federal government uses, which you're supposed to when you write legislation. And uh, that included same-sex couples. And some of the conservatives thought we were promoting the homosexual agenda. So I wanted to have a press conference and point out that these knuckleheads would rather let girls get shot in the face than allow teen dating of the same sex. But I didn't do that. Bill Seitz, who's also a Republican, got in. He fixed the language. We got the bill passed. And we had a a CLE fundraiser, and uh, I went, and Betty was my guest. Um, Do you have any good stories from when you were a state house reporter? <laughs> so maybe like narrow it down to like a couple or okay. your your favorite one. Um, I was um, at the Citizen Journal at the time, and this was when the home state savings and loan crisis happened. The savings and loans collapsed. Big day. Dick Celeste was governor. The Senate was in the hands of the Republicans. The House was in the hands of the Democrats. Back then, the two parties worked together. UPI was still around, and the guy who was the UPI reporter sat next to me in the state house press room. And the only big paper in the state that covered UPI was the one I worked for. And they roped off the section of the state house, and they had highway patrolmen scheduled there. And so they would not let us up to where they were doing the negotiating. And we're all mad, and we're all calling, and no one's calling us back. And all the reports, it's coming up on our deadline. So Lee Leonard from UPI, the dean of the press corps, he comes into the press room with his notebook, and he's got the whole deal. And I said, Lee, how did you get up there? He said, I knew they would be hungry. So he went to the basement, and he sat in the elevator closest to the vending machines. And when the people on the third floor went down to the basement for food, the elevator came up, and Lee got off the elevator. And so um, I did the same thing, and I ended up, they ended up using my story instead of Lee's story because he was very nice. He shouldn't have told you then. He shouldn't have told me, but that's the kind of person he was. And... um, after that, I learned that building inside and out. And now we, we were just talking last night. Uh, I was with Planned Parenthood and ARAL, some one of the many anti-choice bills Kasich was signing, and they wouldn't let us in the governor's office. And so I said, you, know, you people go to this stairwell. You people go here. And we broke up our little group because if anybody came out, we, would, we made sure we had all of our bases covered. You know, you mentioned the Republicans and Democrats worked together back in the day. Um, we don't see as much of that now, I think, both at the state level and at the federal level. Yeah. I'm wondering, how do you think, uh, you know, the politics has changed? Um, I think because we have such ridiculously gerrymandered districts, the winner of the general election is determined by the political index of the district. So we have all these districts drawn either for a Republican or for a Democrat. And so... The prime, the, so Republican primary voters are more conservative than just general election Republican voters, just like Democratic primary voters are more liberal. And so we have the far left and the far right, and what they do is they focus on the social issues instead of the economic issues, which is why our state's such a mess. You look at Ohio, you look at what Ohio's given the world, light, flight, 
the golf ball, the gas mask, rubber tires, Superman, John Glenn, Toni Morrison, all kinds of amazing things. Look at where we are now. Number one, an in infant mortality for black babies. Number two, an accidental opioid overdose deaths. Maternal mortality is rising in a state with destination hospitals. We have charter schools that are so bad, we are made fun of by charter school supporters at national conferences. What happened to Ohio? But we've got all these abortion restrictions, and we have an attorney general who continues to fight the social issues, even the ones that his team has lost, like same-sex marriage. And that's why I feel so strongly about doing something about gerrymandering. When there's competitive districts, the good guys win on the issues. And let me give you an example. When Ted Strickland was governor, he did this energy restructuring law, and he required that a certain percentage of our power be generated from alternative and renewable energy sources. And I worked on that bill, but my client was the Manufacturers Association. And they did not want the green energy benchmarks in there, and Strickland insisted. And so right when it was down at the very end, the governor said to the head of the OMA, what will it take to get your team on board? And he said, give us a little elasticity so our manufacturers can retool and make the component parts for wind and solar. And that's exactly what happened. And all of a sudden, we are leading the world, leading the nation in new green jobs. These are good paying, family sustaining manufacturing jobs. Well, GOP stands for Grand Oil Party these days. And so when Kasich took office, he decided he wanted to kill the benchmarks. The only Republicans who voted against killing them, one was in a competitive district and the other was from Northwest Ohio, where solar's a big deal. Now, why would you vote against good jobs and, and clean air and clean water? There's no good reason to vote against that. I mean, the business community was on side. You had, you had the Sierra Club and the Manufacturers Association on the same team. You don't see that very often. And so this is what's become of Ohio, and I just think it's a tragedy because we're going to, you know, we're the Mississippi of the North. What do you miss most about being a reporter? Um, I miss the uh, competition. I mean, I, I like to, to beat people, and uh, I understand I had some unflattering names from some of the men in the press corps. Are you able to share any of them? Or One starts with a C. Okay. Uh, and, it's, and so I, you know, I called up and I said, this is when I was at the, Cincinnati Enquirer, and then the, the offender was at the plane dealer, and I called and I said, I'm going to find a Cleveland story every week, and I, I told him where I was going to stick it, and I said, I won't call you and tell you about it, but you will know it when you see it, and I did that, and so... Uh, she just held up her middle finger for those who I don't... Just, yes, yeah. yes, so um, <laughs> that was fun, and every, you know, and it's nice when you can do things that help people, and I think a lot of the stuff that we did helped people. And we had a great team there. I mean, we had, there were seven of us. I hear there were code names. There were fish names. Yes. The fish names. This guy from the Senate Democratic Caucus, Tommy the Swordfish, he was the press secretary, but his mouth always got him in trouble. So they didn't want him to talk to the press. So you had to call up because he was such a font of history and information. You had to call up and say the password is swordfish. And so he gave out fish names. And my fish name was Jaws. And when I was at the Dayton Daily News, we had this new intern, and he was 
shy. I don't know why he picked that profession, but he was shy. And we were trying to get something out of Ben Espy, who was the minority leader, and he was an African-American man. And he was on the Ethics Commission, Ethics Committee, and the Ethics Committee is not allowed to leak documents, but we tried. And so the swordfish leaves a message on our answering machine that said, Jaws, minnow, swordfish here, the black bass won't help. And we hit the button, and the intern's there, and we knew what that meant, but he, he looked horrified. And then when we explained to him what it all meant, he didn't appreciate the humor. <laughs> you know, yep. Jane has a, has a fish name. Mile. Is she your boss? Jane Cahoon, Jane yes. Cahoon, okay. Hers was Northern Pike. So, you know, we, we got Julie Carsmythe, who's now the AP bureau chief. Hers was squid because she had her tentacles everywhere. <laughs> uh, and some people did not like their fish names. We had, we had one guy who worked with me in Cincinnati. He ended up quitting and going to work for the Republicans. And Tommy the Swordfish named him Eelman. And as soon as it was announced that he was going to work for the Republicans, Tommy called and said, you notice I noticed his snake-like tendencies before you did. <laughs> talked a little bit about the Me Too movement and how that has sort of been uh, going across the nation and and changing people's minds um, about what's appropriate in the workplace. Yeah, so something that strikes me about Sandy, and this is, I think, like a common trait among female reporters, especially female statehouse reporters, where it's kind of testosterone soaked. And there's a time where uh, a female reporter was called out for wearing trousers in in the gallery. My God, you know, but so I think to, to be a woman in that era, you had to be extra tough and put up a lot of stuff. And so Sandy Tice, I don't know like what the right word is that I can use that is G-rated. Um, she's tough. Um, that's what comes to mind anyways. And she's uh, has, you know, a perspective that she kind of brings with her today, I think, that she sort of formed during her years uh, down there. She also, I, I believe she talked about the kind of evolution where, you know, there was this time back when women were first getting involved in politics where... There were very strict rules, and it kind of, you know, as it went along, you know, it started to loosen a little bit. But uh, you can see, you know, even with some of the developments that have happened at the state house right now, we're like we're definitely not quite there. So, you know, think of the Bill Sites thing. She goes into that a little bit. Um, and it was interesting to get her perspective, again, just being on both sides. Yeah, I can't imagine what it was like to be a woman in the workplace in, in the 1970s and, and 80s. Um, you know, you were a trailblazer. You were sort of the first generation of working women. Um, and the amount of uh, flack that some of these women had to put up with, um, I know, uh, eclipses what, what I have had to deal with in, in my career. Um, and I have a lot of respect for those women. They had to put up with a lot and um, had to work a, lo- a lot harder to be taken seriously. And, um, you know, perhaps some of that toughness um, that you sense from Sandy, um, it, it can be attributed to that. I mean, I don't know, but I, I certainly have a lot of admiration for women of that generation. And with that, let's get back to more from Sandy Tice. Can you describe, you know, what, what is your job? At Progress Ohio, what do you guys do there? Yeah, and, and how did you get there, like, for the people who don't know? Um, I was, uh, I've worked with them off and on since they started in 2006. And in 2006, I did uh, a lot of political research. 
and the stuff that I couldn't get where it needed to be, I would hand off to them and they would get it out there. I think I think it's important because it's an independent lefty voice. A lot of the other progressive groups, I think, are too aligned with the official Democratic Party apparatus. And uh, Progress Ohio fights for good government and ethics and transparency and democracy. And when we worked on the legislative redistricting thing the last time, the Democratic Party was among the last to endorse it. And that the Republicans endorsed it. It's so funny now because the Republicans who led the fight the last time are complaining about the congressional plan, which is modeled after the legislative one that won in all 88 counties. How, how often do you find yourself at odds with the Democratic Party? Not too often, but every now and then I do. And I, I mean, I every now and then somebody who's affiliated them with, will call and they'll complain about something that we do. And I'll say, look, we don't work for you. You don't work for us. Sometimes we're going to be on the same team. Sometimes we're not going to be on the same team. But uh, We get this question a lot as reporters. I know people will be like, so do you go in the office? And they just don't get what we do on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> uh, what, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? I'm in the office a lot. I'm on the phone a lot. I do a lot of writing. Um, we put out a week in review. I hope you guys read it. Um, it's the lefty news of the week. And um, we have some really interesting designers who put it out. It, it, there's a graphic that goes with it, and it's the state of Ohio. It's got lots of emojis that tell you how to feel. And every week it has a swamp report. And um, it's what's going on in the Trump White House. It's it's a way to inform people and entertainment, entertain them a little bit. You know, they, what's the, the stereotype? Newspapers are supposed to outrage you, make you laugh, and make you think. Well, that's what we try to do with the Week in Review. Uh, we do a lot of coalition building with people. Um, because we can't do it ourselves. We love Policy Matters Ohio. They do really amazing research, and uh, we're sort of a communication shop. So we have a lot of press conferences on behalf of mission-aligned groups, even if our name's not on it. Sometimes we're the people behind it who puts the event together and lines up the speakers, that kind of stuff. You're a nonprofit, correct? Yes. Who, Who are the donors and the backers? A lot of organized labor unions, um, some individuals, foundations, changes all the time. We're always broke. <laughs> um, you also do consulting, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who are some of your clients? Um, I can't tell you because they're all confidentiality, but I got rid of my political clients when I went to Progress Ohio. It's all business to business. The one is a trade publication that caters to manufacturers. And uh, there was a, a young man who was taking over this publication from his dad, and he wanted to turn it from what was a pretty unsophisticated thing to a real trade publication. And so he asked me to take a look at it. And I looked at it, and on one page was people on the move, and it was you know headshots of people in the industry on the move. And then on the facing page was an advertisement, and there was some big piece of equipment that meant nothing to me, but I'm sure the readers knew what it was. And then there was a woman standing on a picnic table next to it with large breasts and hot pants and her arms up in the air. And underneath it, it said, two examples of fine construction. And so I said to him, what percentage of your audience is women? He said, well, that's a good question. You know, there's a lot more women in this industry and we're trying to, and I said, then get that stuff out of your publication. This, first of all, it's not funny. And um, and so he said, okay, well, he called me the next day, and one of the women on the staff 
uh, was complaining about a hostile work environment. She came into his office crying and telling him what was going on. And he said, well, that's funny. You should bring that up because we're going to get this kind of stuff out of this magazine and we're going to professionalize it. (laughs) And she never sued. And I've had them as a client for 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) And it's editing. I don't have any editorial content. It's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, some of the sexism because that's really been the kind of the big narrative for almost a year now, really. I mean, yeah. at least since uh, Harvey Weinstein came out, but even going back further a little bit, if you go into the 2016 election, um, and you know, it's a big issue at the state house as well. Yes. So you've been, you know, in Columbus and uh, at the state house for years. You've covered male-dominated legislatures. Um, you know, are there some stories of situations that you've encountered? I mean, you already mentioned that. You know, there were some names thrown at you, but are there any things you saw? Or um, When um, Dick Finan took over as the Senate president, he's a very conservative man from Cincinnati, he made the pages wear uniforms because they showed up, many of them showed up looking like they were going to a cocktail party. And watching the legislators talk about them and interact with them and look at them was really creepy. And I think it's gone underground a little bit. It's still really a problem. Uh, And there were some women legislators who had a press conference, and they asked Bill Seitz, who was one of the men caught at the roast, saying some... Roast of uh, House staffer. Yeah, he was leaving. And, you know, making fun of a couple of women, one a former member and one a current member. And, uh, And then they wanted him to step down. And he just went after him in the paper said it was all politics and and that it wasn't his conduct it was just his speech so it was protected and he did this right after he had to go through sensitivity training clearly learned nothing and that kind of stuff is a problem and I am glad that the women are openly fighting back you know the one woman he made fun of uh, I think he said she was a tinfoil hat wearer my son had a friend in high school whose parents kicked him out because he went and spent the weekend with his girlfriend who was a college freshman. They kicked him out. He came home. His personal effects were on his front lawn. And so he moved in with another friend. And that friend's mom was dying of cancer. And she called me and she said, would you take this kid in? And we took him in. He lived with us for a couple months. We had a graduation party for him. I said, it's a fundraiser. It's not a party. It's a fundraiser. And he invited a bunch of his parents' friends. And one of the friends was diana fessler who they made fun of and she was very conservative and i disagreed with her on everything and she came into my house and she said what are you doing here and i said i live here and she asked me where his parents were and i told her what happened she was unbelievably kind i got christmas cards from her she checked in with him to find out how he was doing when he was a freshman and you know she's a nice person she doesn't deserve that you know, we've seen politicians, and not even just politicians, because this has kind of gone in, you know, there's all kinds of industries now, you know, uh, Hollywood, uh, even the, you know, head of the SPCA was caught up, or the Humane Society, forgive me, uh, the Humane Society. Does it feel like this is different now? I mean, because we've heard these sort of stories come out before, they seem to be isolated before, and now it seems to be coming out in a wave. Is is something changing? Do you think something's changing? I think women know it's okay to speak out, and you guys probably watch some of those gymnasts. Wow. And there were a lot of them who weren't going to testify in court, and then they felt like they were lifted up by their their peers, 
And uh, you're talking about the Michigan State. Thing, yeah, right? the yeah the doctor Nasser is that his name? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think people feel freer to talk about it now. And I can't believe I a really good friend of mine told me she was raped, and that's why she moved out of state. And I've known her forever. And she just called out of the blue one day and said, you know what happened to me? And I said, why didn't you tell anybody? And she said, I didn't think anybody would believe me. So I think we're going to see a lot more people standing up, stepping up, saying no. I think that's a good thing. Um, why do you think the state house continues to be so male-dominated, even though, you know, ostensibly things have been changing, becoming more enlightened when it comes to that, to sort of, you know, gender equality and stuff like that. We used to have a lot of Republican women who were pro-choice. Betty Montgomery, Joanne Davidson, Ann Wilmer Benjamin, Marilyn Reed, Priscilla Mead. They're not welcome in the Republican Party anymore. And so so there's a lot more women who care about reproductive justice and reproductive rights than men. I think that's part of it. And part of it is just this mindset that um, women think that they're not qualified. And men think that they're, they've got their path to the presidency. You know, they're very confident and they think that they can do it. And it blows me away how many women feel that way. That's also changing. Um, there's a record number of women running for office, being trained to run for office, signing up for organizations like She Should Run or Lead Ohio who are getting help running for office. I think we're gonna see a lot more are you are you encouraging women to run? I think they should run. Are there any that sort of stand out to you? Um, you know, I I'm a big Betty Sutton fan. I um, well, you know, we've record number of women running for governor. Betty's now teamed up with Rich Cordray for lieutenant governor. But we have Connie Pillich, Mary Taylor on the Republican side, uh, who put three and a half million of her own money in a loan for her campaign. That's a level of commitment that you don't see very often. Um, one of the big stars, I think, is Kathleen Clyde, who's running for Secretary of State. Yeah, she raised a lot of money for her. She for did. Her race. Yeah, she, and she's so smart, and she's so good on all the open government, pro-democracy, redistricting, <clears throat> anti-voter purge stuff. That I think she's a real star. And there's a lot of women at the local level who are starting to run too. Are you surprised, given the kind of current environment, though, um, where we don't see more women kind of on the ticket? I mean. You've got Connie Pillich, you've got Mary Taylor, you've got Kathleen Clyde, and it's pretty much nothing after that. Well, but I, I think it's interesting. Um, Dennis Kucinich has a woman running mate. I mean, she's from White Hat, which not a good time to be running with a charter school in your background. Uh, like I said, Rich Cordray and Betty Sutton, that's an interesting team. Um, and I give Betty credit. She wants to win. And I think she thinks that the best chance the Democrats have to take back the governor's office is with Cordray and Sutton on the same team and not competing against each other. So one of my favorite political stories, um, I guess, just like in recent years anyways, um, uh, and it kind of coincides with one of my favorite journalism stories too, is some of the coverage that you did of Larry Householder when you were still with The Plain Dealer. Can you talk about a little bit about your adventures with that? Uh, Larry was the Speaker of the House, and there were all kinds of tips coming in the door that the pay-to-play culture in the Ohio House of Representatives was out of control, and that if you paid campaign contributions at a certain level, you had a much better chance of getting your way. And so some couple people call us, and they have some information for us, and they want to know if we're interested in it. And 
they gave us a little taste of what it was. <clears throat> and so Ted Wendling and I, we drive out to Never Never Land because people can't be seen in public with us. And we take our laptops and we're there for hours taking notes. The guy, he puts a disc in the laptop and there's probably 200 documents. And one of, one of them is called How to Kill Ken Blackwell. So we said, oh, call that one up. Ken Blackwell was the state treasurer at the time. And uh, so we called it up, and it was this memo about how to ruin his political career. And it had all these military metaphors in it. It was very strange. And so we had him call up other things. And finally, after hours of taking notes, the guy says, would you like a copy of this? So <laughs> we're like, yes, we would like a copy of it. Would have liked it like an hour ago before my hand went numb writing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so... They gave it to us, and we went back to the home office, and we put together a coverage plan, and we were very excited about it. And then the lawyer said we couldn't use it because we could get charged with wiretapping. Now, we got it legally from somebody who got it legally, from somebody who got it because they illegally backed up their political laptop on the state system. But we couldn't defend ourselves because we told the sources <coughs> we guaranteed that they would get anonymity. So the only stuff that we could use was stuff that we could independently verify. Well, the computer tells you who the authors are. So we took the Kill Ken memo to the poor man who wrote it and said, we would like to talk to you about this Kill Ken memo. Um, there was a big FBI investigation. Uh, they didn't find anything the investigator um, wanted to retire, and he stuck around longer than he wanted to try to finish this case, and nothing happened. Um, so you mentioned like having uh, sort of, I don't know, being friendly with people who are of opposing political views. So Ken Blackwell probably doesn't get more conservative than Ken Blackwell. No. Was he appreciative of the fact that you brought that <laughs> stuff to light? I think he was. He was my favorite statewide elected official because you never knew what he was going to say, and he had a real knack for calling on a slow news day and saying something outrageous. And he was, he's an interesting guy. He's funny, uh, he's colorful. He is so conservative that, you know, he, he couldn't get elected governor. He's the guy Ted Strickland beat, but he's a funny man. Do you think that, uh, so back to Larry Householder, you know, he's obviously, or people may know listening that he's making another run uh, to become Speaker of the House again. Uh, what are the likelihood, or what's the likelihood in your opinion that he will be able to do that? I think it's looking good for him. Um, he's uh, got some allies of his roughing up some of the competition, and he's raising a lot of money, and I know he's making people inside the caucus nervous, and he should, but I can't believe that he's come back and has the nerve to run for speaker again. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you expect when he left office the first time that he'd be coming back? No, I don't think anybody did. And all of a sudden, he's back. Uh, something I try not to underestimate is just the ability of people to come back politically. And I think Dennis Kucinich like, kind of maybe typifies that. But there's all kinds of different figures of people you think they're down and out. And, yeah. You know, they've always got a second act. Yeah, Absolutely.
Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So, we have an election this year in Ohio. Did you guys hear? Um, yeah, I, I may have. have picked that up somewhere. What do you think's going to happen? What did Sandy have to say about that? You know, for being pretty ardently liberal, she was uh, very good at kind of given some good analysis um you know we asked her mostly about the democratic side of course and i don't think it's any surprise she thought that cordray was probably the best candidate going forward but she had some really good insight on the down ticket races as well and with that let's listen to more from sandy tice speaking of kucinich um i want to ask you to you know put your political bias aside for just a moment okay and i want you to handicap the governor's race for us I think uh, it's the Democrats to lose. There's only been two times in Ohio history where the same party has held the governor's office uh, four cycles in a row. We had Voinovich, Voinovich, Taft, and Taft was one of them. We still are a swing state, despite the makeup of our congressional delegation and our state house. I think that this charter school scandal is really, really bad for the Republicans. Every time the Democrats have come in and swept out the Republicans, other than Kent State, it's been in response to some cataclysmic screw up on the part of the Republicans, like the coin scandal, or the Crofter scandal, or right to work in 1958. This one is the Republicans brought the charter schools to Ohio with this promise. Give us less regulations and we'll give you better schools and more accountability we have gotten worse schools and less accountability. And everybody running on the statewide Republican side has some culpability. There used to be this office called the Legislative Office of Education Oversight, L-O-E-O, to those insiders. L-O-E-O. Yes, L-O-E-O. And it it examined public schools, charter schools and traditional schools. And right when they were starting to spot the trends with the charter schools that we're seeing right now, John Husted killed it. He's Mike DeWine's running mate. They've all taken money from him, from Bill Logger and from White Hat. Um, and I was doing a TV show a couple weeks ago, and the Republicans on the show blamed it on Ted and Sherrod. Like, what? I mean, Sherrod was in Congress when the charters came, when the oversight was killed, and when the Obama administration sent Ohio the biggest chunk of money, federal money, for high-performing charter schools we couldn't even spend the money because we didn't have enough and we got it under false pretenses. Sherrod was the guy who blew the whistle on that and helped fix the mess in Washington. So I think this is a good year. I think Cordray and Sutton are most likely going to be the Democratic nominees. We have um, two really popular people, and they're popular in different parts of the state. He's incredibly popular in central Ohio. He's got national money. You know, he was a big Obama guy. Um, I think Obama's going to step up with them. Betty Sutton immediately got the endorsements from Marsha Fudge and Marcy Kaptur. And those women don't step out early, hardly at all. And when they do, they expect other people to follow them, and they do. 
and she's really strong in the northern part of the state. So I think they're going to be tough to beat, and I think DeWine is, Ohio wants change, and having a guy who's been on the ballot for 40 years and who's out of step politically with the state is not the best ambassador. It's the year of the woman again. We got two white guys on the Republican side. I think that's not good. I'm, I'm feeling hopeful for my team. You don't see uh, Dennis Kucinich making any waves in that primary? I, I, I think he's, he's very good at getting attention. And he comes from an important market. Obviously, you know, I think 40% of the Democratic primary voters live in the Cleveland media market. But um, like I said, his running mate used to work for White Hat, and the two biggest dirtbag charter school chains are White Hat and ECOT. And um, I, I heard Dennis on Fox making some comments about the media that I thought were really out of line. I mean, you guys aren't the enemy of the state. And I also heard him recently talking about how he's been consistently a fighter for A, B, C, D. He was opposed to abortion rights until he ran for president. Women are grumpy. We've tired of it. And the Kasich administration has closed half the clinics and put in place 20 new restrictions. Um, like I said, maternal mortality and infant mortality are both really, really high. And he's not, case, the policies of the Republicans, they're hurting moms and kids while they're marketing themselves as pro-life. So I think Dennis is, you know, I think he'll do better than some people expect. I don't think he's going to win the primary. Why do you think, given that it is sort of the year of the woman, that support for Connie Pillich hasn't really seemed to coalesce? Um, I, I, I just don't think people know enough about her, and I think when you have somebody with Cordray's credentials coming in, you know, that sort of tips the scales in his, in his place. On the other hand, I don't think the Democratic Party has been good at elevating women. They have a long history in contested primaries of picking men over women. Jane Campbell, who was a very high-profile state legislator and then became mayor of Cleveland, she wanted to run for governor when Rob Birch ran. And he almost we almost lost our major party status because, what, he got 26% or something? Was that the worst one in history that as far was, as... Uh, that was the worst one in history. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Ed Fitzgerald came close. But. Ed, Ed came close. And Betty Sutton wanted to run then. And the boys in charge of the party told her no. Okay. She'd have been a much better candidate than Ed. Jennifer Bruner would have been a much better general election candidate than Lee Fisher. I worked for Jennifer. And I didn't find anybody who said, God, Lee's going to win. They would just went, oh, landslide Lee. You know, he won his... AG race by 1,234 votes, earning the nickname Landslide Lee. But the party apparatus, the people who were in charge of the Democratic Party, mainly male labor leaders, they get behind the men over the women. And it's been happening for a really long time. And the Republicans had the first woman speaker, the first woman auditor, the first woman attorney general, the first woman chief justice, the Republican Party. And that's one of the reasons why the Democratic women are grumpy. Why do you think it is that they have such a problem elevating women? I, I think that the you know the financial backbone of the Democratic Party is organized labor, and I think the men in charge of the executive committee tend to get behind men. Um, I remember in 2016 there was some controversy about the Democratic U.S. Senate primary. Uh, Ted Strickland ended up coming out, but... P.G. Sittenfeld, who's a young city uh, city councilman from Cincinnati, 
there's a debate about who is the right candidate and, and then people kind of accuse the Democratic Party of sort of pushing PG out. Um, do you think that the Democratic Party has a problem with, with uh, also encouraging younger candidates? I, I think they did. I think this year you notice they're staying out and they're not endorsing, which I think is a very smart move. Another smart move is they know that their candidates aren't as well known as the Republican candidates. So they're doing these early debates and these forums. And I don't see anybody putting their thumb on the scale for any of the candidates who are running in a primary. And I don't think that would have happened in the past. Um, when Paul Tipps was the chairman, he didn't do that. He believed that the county chairs should tell the state chair what to do. And he was very good at that. And, you know, when Paul left, the Democrats controlled all five statewide constitutional offices, the congressional delegation, the Ohio House, the Ohio Senate, the Supreme Court, and Howard Metzenbaum and John Glenn were our U.S. senators. Well, let's let's figure out how Paul did that and mimic it. What about some of the down ticket races? How are you? Uh, how are you feeling about those? I, I, I'm feeling good about them. I think, um, like I said, I think Kathleen Clyde's a real star. Uh, Dettelbach, I, I don't really know him, but he's running for attorney general. And I think he's really hit the ground running, and I like his pro-consumer message. He's taken on the charter schools, which is what he should do. Um, it, it does a nice contrast with the sitting attorney general. The attorney general has really good law enforcement and consumer protection authority. And, um, you know, ECOT, with our money, put a TV ad on the air that accused the state of wanting to eliminate school choice, which is total baloney. I mean, call up the website and look at all the bells and whistles they have on there about school choice. Mike DeWine should have sued him. False advertising is against the law. Using our money to falsely advertise on behalf of a chain that has the worst four-year graduation rate in America is a no-brainer. So I think Dettelbach's doing a good job of raising these consumer issues and then drawing a contrast with the guys at the top of the Republican ticket, that's really smart. I think an interesting story is uh, after years of ECOT, kind of the criticism from people like you uh, and others, though, uh, swirling around them that kind of there's finally been sort of like a regulatory crackdown in the last year or two. Um, what do you think changed? And But you mentioned Mike DeWine. Do you, do you think Republicans are still reluctant to enforce? I, I think some of them are, and some of them are still reluctant to admit that it's a problem as severe as it is. Uh, and part of it was, I mean, Patrick O'Donnell, your education reporter, he's done some amazing reporting. He's the one who caught the head of the charter school office cooking the books and not including in the ratings information from some of the worst performing charter schools. And then, you know, they, they, he's the one who helped point out some of the problems when we applied for that federal money we lied on our application and at the time the guy who was doing the lying and doing the scrubbing was married to John Kasich's campaign manager for president Beth Hansen so I think because Kasich was running for president and our charter schools were starting to make national news he's globetrotting and he goes to some of these national papers and they ask him about his crummy charter schools and I think all of that stuff combined was helpful. And I don't know what triggered Kasich to turn on ECOT, but something did. So I'm curious, who, uh, you know, who are some of the best public servants you've ever seen, both Republican and Democrats? You've been in government for a long time. Um, I think Vern Sykes is. He's a state legislator from Akron. 
Um, he cares about the right stuff. When the first school funding case, the first Rolf case was decided that said that our method of funding schools was unconstitutional, um, it, we, you know, the reporters worked seven days a week and they were trying to figure out what they were gonna do, but all the Democrats were on one side of the building and all the Republicans were on the other side and the reporters were sitting in the hallway between them, sort of like in the demilitarized zone, waiting for people to come out. And it was probably three o'clock in the afternoon and no one, the Democrats would come out and say rotten things about the Republicans and the Republicans would come out and say rotten things about the Democrats. And so we thought, so we, you know, we're having this little wager, who's gonna be the first person to mention the 1.8 million school children as Vern Sykes? And he came out and he was distraught and he talked about the obligation that they had to do something and how public education is the great equalizer. Um, I've always liked him. I've always been a big Betty Montgomery fan. Um, the first time I saw her in a committee hearing, she was asking questions that made it clear she had actually done something very unusual. She had read the bill. And she's asking questions about how this would interface with local government, and that's where she came from, from local government. And whoever was, the person testifying who supposedly was behind this bill didn't write it, didn't read it, and couldn't answer her questions. <laughs> and so she was always a hard worker, and I, I always got a kick out of her. We've been talking about the pol political handicapping or just the out outlook this year. Uh, what are some uh, some policy goals that you have, and what do you where do you see them going? I think the most important issue facing the state is the need to end gerrymandering. And um, if the Republicans put on a bad plan, we're going to go to the ballot with a good plan, just like we did last time. And do you think that's likely, kind of given how things have been going? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. They're getting beat up pretty badly. What I think is funny is people now know what gerrymandering is. There's been a real public education campaign, and people understand why we're seeing some of the gridlock that we see now is because these people don't feel the need to be accountable to the voters. And I was just at an event this week, and somebody said, what do you think the most important issue facing the state? And probably five or six people yelled, gerrymandering. And I thought, wow, you don't hear that. So I think that's going to be good. Um, I think nationally, Citizens United needs to be overturned. All these things are real vital to our democracy. And I think we need to do something more about the charter schools. I mean, we have so many chains that are so rotten. There's a guy from Students First, it's a pro-charter school group. He told the Columbus Dispatch a few years ago that most Ohio charter schools stink and should be closed. And whenever I complain about them, the Republicans go, oh, teachers unions, the teachers unions. No, yeah, the teachers unions don't like them either. They don't like the bad ones, but most Ohio charter schools stink and should be closed. And there's all kinds of insider trading and these abusive leases. Like one chain has, a, it's a nonprofit and they have a for-profit real estate arm. And they charge the school an unbelievable amount of money for rent. And so all the money goes out of the classroom to this out-of-state for-profit real estate company. That should be illegal. And in some states it is. So I know you said that you're optimistic about Democrats' chances this year, but it's been more than... 10 years since Democrats have really controlled uh, anything on the state level. I guess, yeah, eight years. Um, so uh, what is it like to advocate for progressive positions when you're sort of in the minority? And, and how do you, uh, you know, how do you accomplish getting things done given just that dynamic? Well, we, you know, we got a pretty good 
charter school accountability passed a couple years ago, House Bill 2, and I think it was just the collective impact of the shame that people felt when Progress Ohio, we, we unearthed a bunch of those scandals. You know, we got them out, we did reports on them, we, and once we started doing it, people started coming to us with more information. Kind of like, you know, when you're a reporter and you have a reputation for doing that, same thing if you're a flack. They come to you, and these were people who were just distraught. And so um, Peggy Lehner, who's the chair of the Senate Education Committee, a Republican, she's also the head of Dayton Right to Life. I like her on charter schools. I don't like her on choice. We worked real closely with her and got a pretty good bill passed. And there are enough people who are either afraid or ashamed or interested in doing something that you can put together a winning coalition on some important stuff. It makes it harder, and it's pretty demoralizing. I mean, like we talked about the payday lenders. We got that referendum passed two to one with no money, and they found a loophole in their back. I want to beat them, too. I just, <laughs> I can't believe that. So do you, do you still feel the, the competition from when you're a reporter, or do you feel that now that you're involved in politics? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I, I have two grown kids, and I want them to stay here. And that's part of it, you know? I mean... I want them to live in a state that is a good place to live and work and raise kids and has good schools and a good economy. And so part of it is motivated by them. And they, I, I enlist them in many of my causes. I told you my poor daughter was you know, one of Shady's ladies. But um, we, we did a kayak protest past Rob Portman's house on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we were kayak activists, and my son had just gotten out of the army. And him and his army buddies, they all went down there and kayaked with us. They wore their army shirts. We had flags because we don't hate freedom like the Republicans do. Um, and, and, you know, we had a lot of fun. And I dragged them to debates with me and asked them to tell me what they think. And So, you know, one question we're trying to figure out with this podcast is, uh, you know, it's called Ohio Matters. Um does Ohio still matter? Is it still important politically? Is it is it just a once every four years state, or is it more than that? I think it still matters. We have a lot of electoral votes. We are a big, important swing state, and as long as we keep our swing state status, I think that keeps Ohio important. Um, that's why the Republicans are fighting so hard against this redistricting, because I think they they want to keep the control in Washington with a lopsided map. And because there are so many districts in Ohio, it's still a big player. We, we have a couple of deep cuts and these are Jane questions. So, <laughs> but so you, you've been a fierce Ohio state football fan. And I, I guess you had a, a vanity plate to that effect at some point in your car. It said it was zealot. Yes. Are you still a OSU zealot? I am. Although um, they, they annoy me more and more lately. We did this project on, IQ Innovations is one of Bill Logger's for-profit companies. And in Kasich's first budget, he put the chancellor of the Board of Regents under his thumb, made it an employee at will, mandated this distance learning clearinghouse, put it at Ohio State, and then Jim Petro was the chancellor. He hired IQ Innovations to be the platform for this, and he put in charge of it a guy who used to work for Bill Logger. I know that's complicated. And then IQ failed to live up to its contractual obligations, and instead of suing them or firing them, Petro engineered, and Ohio State looked the other way, a several-million-dollar upgrade to this private business. 
And that really irritated me. And Ohio State um, told me, oh, no, then Ohio State canceled the contract right after we had done this. And they insisted it was all fine. And um, everybody loved it. And lots of people worked on it. And I just got some documents last week from one of my new whistleblowers that shows that's baloney. You're going to be hearing a little bit more about that. And for them to have their tuition so high and then to use public money to prop up a private business that's failing and us taxpayers get nothing out of it is wrong. And Ohio State plays those political games a lot and they need to knock that off. And then our last question, at least the last Jane question anyways, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's actually not really a question, I guess. It's like a command. Um, so tell us about your dog. His name is Truman the Wonder Dog. He's very handsome. He's black and white. I decorated around my dog. And um, I live in a neighborhood in transition. And uh, Truman has protected me on a couple of occasions. Somebody was climbing over my fence. And Truman gets the little doggy mohawk and he runs out the back. And the guy's leg is hanging over the fence. And Truman's vertical leap was epic. And he's getting the trying to get the guy's leg. And he jumped over the other side of the fence. So he's my superhero, too. What kind of dog is Truman? He's a mutt. Mm. All right. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with us today. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.